Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Kayla Mason, and I am so grateful that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today, I am honored to be joined by Sheila Gregor to talk with her about her brand new book, She Deserves Better, Raising Girls to Resist Toxic Teachings on Sex, Self, and Speaking Up. And, you know, here on the podcast, what we want to do is we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations, to have conversations that you might not be able to, it could just be difficult to find a a place to talk about these different things. And what we want to do here on the podcast is create some of those conversations, to have some of those conversations that sometimes can be difficult to have with other people. And today we're gonna di- we're really gonna dive into uh, one about sex and uh, purity culture, and and the church is one, and some of the ways that the church has uh, unintentionally contributed to this this problem. We're gonna just get into a whole lot of that today. And, you know, this isn't the first time that we've talked about it. We've done a couple of other episodes on it as well. And I'll link to those in the show notes. But if you enjoy learning about these things, if you're a lifelong learner, if you want to continue to learn about uh, the things that maybe don't always get talked about so much, you know, please subscribe to my Substack, to where I just give bunches of recommendations for some of the things that I am currently learning from, some of the things that are promote or provoking my imagination or provoking my curiosity. And they're not always things that I agree with, but it's important for us to learn about things uh, and to have conversations with people that we uh, may not agree with completely as well, because that helps us, uh, it stretches our imagination, it stretches our curiosity, our empathy, and so on, and so forth. And today, as I mentioned, today we're going to get into a a very fun conversation with Sheila. She is also, let me, actually, let me, let me tell you a little bit about Sheila, and then we're going to dive right into our conversation. So Sheila Gregor is passionate about changing the evangelical conversation around sex. She is a popular speaker, marriage blogger, and award-winning author of seven books, including The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex and The Great Sex Rescue as well. She also hosts the Bear Marriage Podcast as well and is just really someone who I've really just enjoyed uh, learning from recently as well. And so without any further wait, here is our conversation. One other thing I wanted to mention before we jump into the conversation is uh, if you haven't picked it up already, we're going to be talking about uh, sex. We're going to be talking about um, purity culture and, and all of that stuff. And so just wanted to give you a heads up that, uh, that we're just going to uh, talk about things that may not be appropriate if you have kids around. So just wanted to give you a heads up on that as well. So that's up for you to decide. But there is your heads up. So without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Sheila, it's so good to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. 
Yeah. And, you know, since this is the first time that we're talking, one of the things that I love asking people about, especially whenever they've, uh, in your case, you've committed yourself to kind of like a, a specific sort of work. And I just love hearing people's origin stories with what got them interested. And so I know that you've written, you know, the great sex rescue and also mm-hmm. she deserves better. And I would just love to hear kind of what made you want to pursue, like just learning and figuring out just all of this. Yeah, I know. It, it's actually really weird because I, I no one ever starts, um, no one ever grows up thinking, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I want to talk about sex in the Christian world all the time because that's just weird. Um, but I started in 2008. I started blogging. Um, I was a I was a women speaker. Um, I was trying to get a bigger platform. And so I just, I did parenting, marriage, housekeeping, organizing. And the more I talked about sex, the more my traffic grew. And so I kind of became this, this Christian sex spot. And um, I, for about 10 years, I wrote a bunch of books on sex. I talked about sex. I was giving lots of great advice. But the one thing that I never did was read other books in the evangelical world about sex and marriage because I was really afraid of plagiarizing. So I thought, you know, I love Jesus. They love Jesus. We're all saying the same thing. Um, And then in 2019, one afternoon, I actually read um, Love and Respect. I, I saw this funny conversation on Twitter and I thought, this is a great way to procrastinate. So I went and I read the book and it was like a nuclear bomb went off in my living room because I read, if your husband is typical, he has a need that you don't have. And the need was for physical release. Mm-hmm. And if he didn't get physical release, he'd come under satanic attack. And there wasn't a single word about women's pleasure. There wasn't a single word about intimacy. And I thought, oh my gosh, if this is what we're teaching, we need to combat this. And so that changed the whole direction of everything that we did. And so now we do these huge research projects to try to find out if there are teachings in the evangelical world that are hurting people and how we can get back to what I think what God really intended. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about some of the teachings that you've, I mean, you mentioned one of them already, but talk to me about, you know, another one or two that you've just found throughout your research that, that people might be surprised to go, wow, I've, I've always thought this, you know, this is taught in my church, but Mm -hmm. as, as you mentioned, like what we teach and the outcome that we want are sometimes very different things or what we intend uh, to teach and the outcome that we want are very different things. Yeah. And I do want to stress, we really do believe that. Like we don't think anyone intended to do any harm. It's just that we're in this, this bubble where bad stuff has been taught for so long and we've kind of lost our discernment. So I think the teachings can be boiled down into two different areas that are harmful. Um, You know, the first is when, when we take agency away from women. Um, so when you say, for instance, that a woman has an obligation to give her husband sex when he wants it, or, um, a woman should have frequent sex to keep her husband from watching pornography. Those are two things that we found in our survey of 20,000 women for the great sex rescue that were highly correlated with lots of terrible things. The other series of messages that, that does really badly is things that paint men in a terrible light. So when we paint men as incapable of being decent people, um, and and we we say that God created men to sin, which is basically what a lot of our theology does. So the idea that um, all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle. Um, highly believed, highly linked with lots of bad stuff, including for men too, because we've, we've surveyed men about this as well. 
um, the idea that boys are going to push your physical boundaries, your sexual boundaries. And so you need to be the gatekeeper. We teach that to teenage girls really, really bad. So when we, when we take agency away from women and when we tell both men and women that boys were just created to sin. And so girls need to be the gatekeeper and stop that sin from happening by dressing modestly, by having lots of sex, by, you know, by stopping them from going too far. All of those things are linked to really bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk to me about some of the really bad stuff and the implications mm-hmm. that can um, just happen in, in our lives or in the people that, uh, you know, if we're church leaders, the people who we we pastor, things like that. Talk to me about the implications that you're seeing from yeah, those beliefs. Well, let me even back up a little bit because I think yeah. there's another fundamental misunderstanding, which is the definition of sex. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. And this sounds, this sounds odd, but I, I think this is the fundamental thing we get wrong and it leads to everything else. So when pastors are talking about how important sex is in marriage and how you need to have lots of sex and how sex is a beautiful gift. Okay. What do you actually mean by sex? And if I, if I were to push that, you know, people would hem and haw, and then they would eventually say something that sounds like Ikea furniture being built, right? Like you put part A into slot B and, and whatever, yeah. um, you know, move around and then, and then he finishes. So, so you, you explain it like that. And so what we, what we really think is that intercourse is sex. If that's true, then she could be lying there making a grocery list in her head. She could be in emotional turmoil or she could even be in physical pain and it would still count as having sex. Mm-hmm. And so when we say that God made sex to be a beautiful gift and we all we mean is intercourse, where her experience really isn't that important. <laughs> yeah. And we're missing the whole point of what the Bible say. Because biblically, sex is not just one-sided intercourse. We see in Genesis 4, there's this funny verse, Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived a son. And you know, you, you think, okay, God's just embarrassed of using the real word, but but I don't think that's the case at all. I think God is telling us that sex is supposed to be this deep, intimate knowing. He's using the same word that is used in the Psalms when David says, search me and know me, O God, right? So it's this deep longing to be connected. We know in Song of Solomon that sex is pleasurable for both. If you count the words, she says more words than he does in that book, and she's having a good time. So we know it's pleasurable for both. We know from 1 Corinthians 7 that it's totally mutual. Everything he gets, she gets too. And so we have this picture in scripture of something which is intimate, mutual, and pleasurable for both. That needs to be the starting point. But the way that we talk about sex tends to focus merely on what he needs, And that can create this situation where what she is experiencing doesn't matter. As long as they're having intercourse, their marriage is good. And that's a really isolating, dangerous place. And we see it especially in, um, just, just to really play it out, one of the most destructive teachings that we measured in The Great Sex Rescue, our first big book, was the idea that a woman is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. Now, here, here's how important that finding is. So when women believe that, first of all, their orgasm rates go down, marital satisfaction goes down. It's just all around terrible, okay? But what's super interesting is that her chance of experiencing sexual pain, um, specifically vaginismus, which is a, a sexual dysfunction disorder that evangelical women suffer from at two to two and a half times the rate of the general population. This is largely our problem, all right? Mm-hmm. Her chance of experiencing that increases to almost the same statistical effect as if she had been abused. Mm. 
Because women's bodies interpret obligation as trauma. Because both obligation and abuse tell her he has the right to use you however he wants. And you don't matter. And if sex is supposed to be a deep knowing, but it becomes an owing, then we're essentially erasing her. And that's just a traumatic thing. Yeah. It even makes me think of, as you were talking about it, like, can you talk about the shame that is in that too? Because especially if you, I can imagine if you grow up believing some of those teachings and you start wrestling with it and maybe you start, um, maybe more advocating, maybe more advocating for yourself, you're going against this belief that Mm -hmm. you were told in church of like, you know, it's, it's the right thing to do, or God wants it to be this way. Can you talk to me about the, the shame in that and how, how we could go about like wrestling through that? Yeah. Cause I think that's what a lot of women do feel is if I don't want sex, I'm a bad wife. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and if I say, Hey, I don't like how this is going in our marriage, then I'm being selfish because this is just something that he needs. And that's how it's defined. It's something that he needs. Um, and so it's like, she doesn't feel like she can speak up, but at the same time, you know, most guys don't want duty sex. Like most guys don't want that either. And, you know, we, we found that a lot of women believe this obligation sex message, even when their husbands don't, and it affects them. So it's not necessarily that the husband is berating the wife with these messages It's that she grew up with them. They were in the water and now she gets married. And instead of sex being this great gift, it becomes this obligation and it's really ugly and neither of them want this. But it's like, we have to get rid of obligation before she can experience real safety and before she can experience real, um, real victory. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that, uh, one of the, you know, the culprits in that is this pure purity culture, the, the beliefs around that, the language around purity culture. And I, and I would be, and we've talked about that, uh, several times here on the podcast before of just purity Mm -hmm. culture and everything. And I, I was I'd be curious to hear how have you seen purity culture like morph through it all? Because, because go ahead, go ahead. No, I I was going to say, because, you know, I feel like that's something that has, has become more aware of people have become more aware of purity culture, but like in many different things, they adapt, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they adapt to today. And so I would love to hear how have you seen purity culture morph and adapt to like the present day? Yeah, you know, that's something that's interesting. So for our second book, for She Deserves Better, we surveyed another 7,000 women to find out how their experiences as teenagers in church and what they were taught by their parents and their dating rules, their sex ed, um, how all of those things together contributed to, um, you know, to their future marital satisfaction, the future sexual satisfaction, self-esteem long-term, all these different outcome variables. And and it's ugly. I mean, purity culture really did hurt in so many different ways. But what's interesting is that I think there's there's been a change in the church and that people have realized that some of the wording that we used was harmful. Mm-hmm. But w- there hasn't been a similar understanding that the problem was not just the wording. The problem was the underlying belief. So let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most damaging beliefs that we measured and she deserves better was the modesty message. We measured four different iterations of it for, um, for she deserves better. We looked at, um, 
the the idea that boys are visual in a way that girls can never understand that um boys can't help but lust if a girl is dressed like she's trying to incite it that uh um Sorry, I've lost my train of thought now. Um, <laughs> the girl who dresses immodestly is worse than a girl who doesn't. And the girls um, must be careful not to be a stumbling block to the boys around her uh, by what she wears. All of them are terrible. All of them do awful things. Just to put some numbers to it, as soon as a girl believes that she's at least partially responsible for causing a boy's lust, she's 68% more likely to marry an abuser when she grows up. She's 52% more likely to have sexual pain. So it's one of the biggest contributors, again, to vaginismus or the sexual pain disorder. All right. So we know the modesty message doesn't work. And you know that every summer, more stuff comes out on social media. It's the, it's the annual, can you wear a bikini fight yeah. that happens on Twitter or the yoga pants debate or whatever. Um, but what happened during purity culture is that there were specific rules about what you could wear. So you can't put more than three fingers below your clavicle, um, your shirt, you you know, if you kneel while you're wearing a skirt, the skirt has to touch the floor, all these specific rules. And many people have realized, okay, legalistic rules are bad. And so we're going to stop with the rules. We're going to stop talking about modesty per se, and we're going to talk about dignity instead. Or we're going to talk about how, you know, it's not about specific rules. It's just about living out the gospel. And so we need to live out the gospel by what we wear. And this sounds better because we're getting away from rules. But let me ask you, Caleb, when you go into Target, is there an aisle that says gospel. I have, I have yet to see it. Exactly. <laughs> there is no righteousness aisle yeah. for clothing at Target. And so yeah. we haven't actually fixed the problem because when we tell girls, you know, you just need to clothe yourselves in righteousness, like the Bible says, or you need to dress with dignity. That leaves it very subjective. So then a girl could think, well, I like what I'm wearing. I think what I'm wearing is, is appropriate. But someone else at church can say, no, does that does that outfit say say gospel to you, Everly? I mean, it. I mean, if you think it says gospel, then yeah. okay. But what does that mean about the what you think the gospel is? So it's it's just it it yeah. it opens up the idea to be really judgmental, and it gets away from the primary problem, which is it was never about rules. It was the fact that we were holding girls responsible for what boys thought and did, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that we were judging girls' faith by what they wore. Mm-hmm. And that that was the primary measure of her faith. And mm-hmm. that was the problem. And we're still doing it. We're just using different words. Yeah. You know, I, I'd be curious because I, I was a youth pastor at one time. Mm-hmm. And so I'd, I'd just love your thoughts on like the, I guess, I guess it kind of is. So like, what, what is a healthy approach to take? And I want to talk about both guys and girls in this mm-hmm. of like, because there is, I don't know. Maybe this is me just thinking about like, you at least want to be like, okay, how do I, how do I talk about this? How do I bring this up? Because some people are thinking about it anyway, like whether Mm -hmm. that be youth leaders or parents or even the students themselves. So I would be curious to hear like, if you were in that situation, how would you like just address, like just address it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think when it comes to the bikini things, I think, First of all, any dress code that we have, it needs mm-hmm. to simply not be about causing lust. Yeah. 
Yeah. We need yep. to separate lust from the conversation. It is perfectly okay to have dress codes that are based on functionality and appropriateness for the occasion. So, you know, if you are going to be water skiing, you need to wear a structured bathing suit that isn't going to fall down. And that's just mm -hmm. as true for boys as it is for girls, yep. <laughs> right? So, you know, structured swimwear. Um, with high support. And you know what? There's a lot of bikinis that have better support than, than one pieces. So or tankini. So like it's not always about how many pieces it is. Yeah. Um what what I hate, like as someone who has multiple lifeguards in my family, telling girls they need to put on t-shirts over their bathing suits mm -hmm. is horrible. Any lifeguard will tell you that is one of the number one causes of drowning. You should never swim in anything other than swimwear. Yeah. Because it can weigh you down. And yet we do that all the time. We tell girls they need to wear clothes over their swimwear. That is dangerous. It is outright dangerous. <laughs> and yeah. so we need to stop with that. But if we can just talk about what is appropriate to wear. And let, let me say something about bikinis. You know, yeah. most people wear bikinis. All right. I would say if you are on a beach today, 95% of people under the age of 25 are wearing bikinis. And if you're going to say that a teenage boy can't control himself in a girl around a bikini, then you should not be letting your teenage boy ever go to the beach ever, ever, ever. And so no. a better way to do it would just be to say, you know what, no matter what someone is wearing, we need to respect them as a whole person. And we need to learn how to treat people with respect. And we need to also remember that girls are visual too. The whole idea yeah. that men are visual and girls aren't, that's been disproved by the most recent meta-analyses. And the idea that like guys can run around without a shirt on, I mean, girls notice that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's just, let's just talk about, you know, how to dress appropriately. And when you're in a co-ed group, I think, hey, everyone wearing a shirt on the beach or wherever or whatever. But if you're swimming, yeah. you're allowed to wear a swimsuit. Yeah. You are allowed yeah. to wear a swimsuit. That is safe. <laughs> yeah. Well, absolutely. I, I love that you said that. Even just like, what environment are you in? And just, a, it's like, what? tell me what environment you're in. Dress accordingly. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, if, if, if a girl is babysitting toddlers, then you probably shouldn't wear a pretty sundress because you're going to be on the ground a lot, right? So like, just dr think about what is appropriate, what is going to work for the occasion. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned. You talked about how as, as the church, sometimes we can have a lack of clarity about what actually sex is. And that can mm -hmm. lead to a lot of misunderstandings. It can lead to um, just a lot of harm. I'd be curious to hear... What's something else that either the church has not been clear about in the past that um, that you wish that we were just more clear on? Oh gosh, I think I think one of the biggest ones, honestly, is that everybody needs to be responsible for their own stuff, mm. and the idea that that boys have this out of control sexuality, um, that girls the girls are responsible for is really toxic as teenagers. But then that same attitude follows us into marriage and is also super toxic. And we need to teach instead that everybody is totally capable of treating people with respect and that self-control is a fruit of the spirit. And girls do not have the Holy Spirit more than boys do. Um, and, you know, when we looked in, in She Deserves Better at a lot of the messages that were given to um, to teen girls. I remember there was this one book written by Shanti Feldon 
where she said, and I'm going to, I'm going to quote a stat. The stat is not accurate. I don't think her question was worded well. I don't think the possible answers were worded well. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a stat, but I don't believe it, but this is what yeah. she said. 82% of boys feel little ability or little responsibility to stop in a makeout situation. And so if you want to stop it is better, it's best to not even start. Now, 100% of boys have the ability to stop and 100% of boys have the responsibility to stop if she says no. And the fact that we told teenage girls that boys couldn't is straight up rape culture. Um, and, you know, we did these, these huge surveys, but we also did a lot of focus groups and individual interviews with people. And we talked to so many women who had been day raped, but hadn't recognized it for decades because they felt like, since I consented to kissing, I put him into a situation where he couldn't help himself. And so it was my fault. And that's what we hear over and over again, that it was my fault because I consented to kiss it. And, you know, oh. I think, and then that follows you into marriage when you think he isn't capable of being a decent human being unless I have enough sex with him. And so sex is seen as something really ugly, um, but he can't help himself. He, he'll lust after other people. He'll watch porn. He won't be able to treat me well unless I have sex frequently. And um, we often hear the 72 hour rule, which is widely taught. It's taught in power of a praying wife in every man's battle um, in sheet music. The idea that you have to have sex every 72 hours or else he'll get um, really grumpy and he won't want to talk with you or, or have a relationship with you. And so women are taught this and often we think, okay, on a schedule, I need to have sex every three days or else something's really bad. But there is no medical reason for that. And it is something that James Dobson appears to have made up in conjunction with Tim LaHaye in the 70s. And it's just stuck ever since. And I'm not saying that frequent sex is bad. Actually, we found that frequent sex is good. It's it's very good. You yeah. know, having sex more frequently is good. But a good sex life, frequent sex life cannot create a good marriage. A good marriage is responsible, you know, for creating a good sex life. And when we rely on frequent sex to fix marriage problems, we will always lose because then we're using sex as a substitute for intimacy. Yeah. Talk, talk about that more of sex as a substitute for intimacy. Yeah. So I think, <laughs> and this is okay. I'm going to say something which is going to sound sexist, all right? <laughs> but I'll just say multiple peer reviewed studies have found this. And I don't think this is biological. I do mm -hmm. not believe this is innate. I do not believe this is the way God designed us. But basically, women tend to be more emotionally mature and emotionally aware than men as a whole. That does not mean every individual woman is more emotionally mature than every individual man. It's just that women as a whole are more comfortable talking about feelings than men are. Yeah. All right? Uh, and again, I would second. Whatever yes. my opinion's worth, I second. Yes. Now, I, again, this is not innate. Yeah. This is not God-designed. Yep. This is largely social. And you can see this across different cultures where when men are encouraged to be emotional, they tend to be emotional. And Jesus displayed every emotion yep. in the Bible. He showed grief. He showed anger. He showed sadness. He showed joy. He showed happiness. He laughed like he had every emotion. So emotions are not bad. But when we're scared of vulnerability, 
Okay. So when we're scared of opening ourselves up, of letting someone else see what we're most afraid of, see what we're, what we're hoping for, but insecure about, um, when there's parts of us that we're really ashamed of, and we'd rather keep those parts hidden. But at the same time, we have this real desire for connection because we were all born with a desire for connection and intimacy that we were born with. What a lot, what often happens is that we channel our needs for connection into sex because that allows us to feel connected without having to do the real work of connection. And a lot of men especially have, have felt like, well, sex is just my love language. Sex is how I feel connected. Sex is the thing that makes me feel intimate with my wife. And so when she doesn't want sex, she's actually rejecting me. But what's really happening is he's wanting to use her quite often without being willing to open up to her, without being willing to listen to her. And eventually she's, she's going to find sex a really isolating, empty experience. You know, just, just as you were talking, it made me think I, uh, you, you may know, or you may know of Zachary Wagner. I know that he's written a, a, a book that kind of goes in time uh, in tandem, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He's been on my podcast. I know him quite well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. He, he was on the podcast, uh, recently. And one of the things that he talked about, um, which, which still has me thinking today is he talked about, uh, the harmful effects of porn and then uh, along with that he mm-hmm. also talked about um some of the areas in which men just aren't educated in terms of just women and, and in terms of sex as well and the harmful effects that that has led and had as well and i'd be curious i know that we've talked about you know a lot of these things already but i would love to hear like what are some of the things that you wish that you know uh teenage boys, high school boys, middle school boys, you know, all the way up to adults that we talked about in church that just helped better prepare men mm-hmm. for, for sex, for healthy relationships, for just all of that. Oh gosh. Okay. I have three big yeah. ones. Let's see if but, I remember them. This is okay. The first thing that I think we need to tell both teen girl or both preteen girls and boys. So I'm talking like 10, 11, 12 yeah. years old is the idea of arousal non-concordance. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that our bodies can be physically aroused by something that our minds detest and are horrified by. And often when kids get their first exposure to porn, which is often accidental or a friend shows them when they're 11 or 12, it can cause real trauma because your body reacts, even if you don't like it. And then you start thinking, I'm a freak Mm -hmm. and there's something wrong with me. And because of that trauma, you can end up seeking it out again. And so if parents can have this conversation with kids first and say, you know what, if you ever see this, you might get aroused. It doesn't mean you're a freak. It doesn't mean you're an addict. It doesn't mean, <laughs> you know, it, it's designed to excite you, but it's it's not good. It's contributing to really bad stuff for people. And, you know, those people are being used and here's how we can fight against it. So that's an awkward conversation to have, but it's it's really a vital one. So to have that with when your kids are just at the age where they could get exposed. The other thing I wish we'd tell boys is that noticing is not lusting. Because mm-hmm. I think we have raised a whole generation of boys who are so hyper vigilant about lust. Because they feel like if I ever have any sexual feelings towards a girl, I have sinned. And so the goal is to have no sexual feelings whatsoever. And you know what? God created you to have sexual feelings. Like attraction is not a sin. 
noticing that someone has a figure is not a sin. Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman with lust, and that is a deliberate action paired with a deliberate mindset. And I think that we have set a lot of our 12, 13, 14 year old boys up for failure because we have told them, you know, if you, if you have any sexual feelings about a girl, you have already sinned. And so they feel like they're fighting an absolutely losing battle and it's just awful. So I think that's, those are two things. The other thing, (laughs) and this one is a hard one to talk about again with, with younger kids. But the younger the girls are, when they know that the female orgasm exists, the more likely they are to orgasm when they're married. But about 40% of women in our sample did not know that you could orgasm until they were over the age of 18. So think about how we talk about sex when we teach about sex. Everybody knows the male orgasm exists because that's it's necessary for babies, yeah. right? And so... A lot of people learn about sex without ever realizing it's supposed to feel good for women too. And if at the same time they learned about sex, they also knew that women could orgasm, I think we we would set up different expectations. Because right now in the evangelical church, we have a 47-point orgasm gap, by which I mean that 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm in a given sexual encounter, and the equivalent number for women is only about 48 mm-hmm. That's a 47-point orgasm gap. And then we asked both men and women, hey, do you do it? Does he do enough foreplay? You know, we asked men, do you do enough foreplay? We asked women, does he do enough foreplay? And in marriages where she doesn't reach orgasm very often, 71% of men still say they do enough foreplay, but so do 52% of women. So we're actually expecting for sex not to be good for her. Because you got to ask, like, enough for what? Okay, so she's not reaching orgasm. How can you be saying you're, be do- you're doing enough? The only way you could think that he's doing enough is if you think the problem is with her, that she is just broken because she doesn't act sexually the way he does, right? Like, what's wrong with her? Look at him. He likes sex. He wants sex. The problem must be with her because we've never taught that men and women just react differently to things. And most women who reach orgasm don't do it reliably through intercourse. There's there's other routes that are far easier for her. You know, just as you were talking, it made me think about just the the, the harmful approach that we're talking about here. It leads to the image of God being just reduced in both men and women. Men in terms of, you know, you can't control yourself. And women in terms of what you were saying, there must be something wrong with her. Of not being able to orgasm or anything like that. I don't know. I was. I would just be curious to hear if you had any other thoughts in terms of um, the image of God and like how that plays out and shame and just all of that. Yeah. So you know, I think when we when we believe that God created us for passion, and that part of that is lived out sexually, and that Jesus came to give us life and give it abundantly then we should be enjoying sex. And that is the goal, you know, that we that we would all um, experience sex as something intimate, as something pleasurable, as something wonderful that brings us together. But when instead, sex has just been a huge disappointment. I mean, so many women told us that they're pri- that if we when we asked them to describe their wedding night, I couldn't believe how many women used the adjective bewildering. 
That's not the way no. you want to describe. <laughs> no. <laughs> like people who went into marriage as virgins. Um, and I, you know, obviously a lot of evangelicals don't, but, but those who do that, that is their primary adjective to describe their first time. It was bewildering. It was, it was awful. It was, you know, it was not what I expected at all. And, you know, they had been told in purity culture that if you wait, the earth will shake, the mountains will move, angels will sing. Right. Um, and it wasn't that. And so then the feeling is I waited, I did everything right. And this isn't working for me, you know, or even if you didn't wait, you know, if you, if you had sex before you were married, then there's another element to it where you start thinking, well, maybe sex isn't good because God is punishing me. Sex was supposed to be great, but because I, I, I had sex beforehand, then God is punishing me and it'll never, I'll never experience what I was supposed to experience. Mm. It's like, God doesn't work that way, you know, and maybe there's something really simple that could fix things, but you're, but you don't realize that. And because you assume it's God punishing you, you're not even looking for answers or you're not trying to communicate with your spouse about it. You just think this is what I'm stuck with. And so I think there is a lot of shame, whether you waited or didn't, because we feel like this is supposed to be the best part of my life and I hate it. Mm -hmm. I don't want it. It didn't turn out the way I was promised. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I really appreciated about She Deserves Better is that in each at the end of each of the chapters, you have conversation like you have conversations for moms and daughters. And, you know, we kind of did the, you know, what are some of the things that we wish that or that you wish that men would have around discussions around sex. I'd love to kind of do the the inverse of what, what are some of the things mm -hmm. around women and sexuality and intimacy and all of that you, that you wish were talked about more often in church? I think the biggest one that's missing, especially for teens is consent. Just the mm -hmm. whole idea of what consent is. Um, in the great sex rescue, when we looked at 13 of the best-selling marriage books, um, in the evangelical world, marriage and sex books, the word consent was not there. It just wasn't even mentioned. The best-selling secular book that we used as a control book for our study was John Gottman's seven principles for making marriage work. He had a whole section on it, on what consent looks like in marriage. It's not even there. And then when it comes to teenage relationships, we don't talk about it either because the messages don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Why would we talk about consent if you're not supposed to be doing it? If we talk about consent, then we're kind of legitimizing doing it. Um, and so there's so many people who don't understand consent and they think that they consented when they didn't. And there's so many guys who don't understand that they are pressuring girls without realizing it because they've been taught, well, this is just the fact that boys have a higher sex drive. You know, boys have such a high sex drive, they can't help themselves. And so it's up to girls to stop it. And I think if we could just talk about consent, it would help bo with both issues. Because, you know, marital rape is a real thing in evangelical circles. We're looking at probably around 20% of marriages have marital rape. And we don't understand what coercion is. You know, coercion is any time she has to have sex to avoid something bad from happening then she isn't truly consenting. So if she has to have sex to keep him from being mean to her, like I got an email from a woman who says, um, every week before my small group, I have to have sex or else he'll embarrass me oh. in the small group. Or I have to have sex before, um, before any big family event if I want him to be nice to my mom, et cetera. So you know, if you have to have sex to manage his moods, if you have to have sex to keep him from being mean to the kids, if you have to have sex to get access to money, 
it doesn't always look like someone holding you down and forcing you. But there's a lot of women who are being coerced. And there's a lot of teenage girls who are being coerced. Like we talked to um to one woman, her stories and she deserves better, where you know, she had said no multiple times. And he kept, you know, he would put his hand somewhere and she'd say no. And he'd stop for two minutes, and then she'd do it, he'd do it again. And she'd say no. And he'd stop for two minutes, then go further. And eventually she realized her no meant nothing. And he raped her, but she didn't realize that for a few decades because she'd stopped saying no because it wasn't working anyway. And so she thought, well, I may as well just lie here then. But she never said yes. She didn't want it. And so there's a lot of women who have suffered, you know, date rapes without ever realizing it. You know, as as we're talking about this, it brings to mind. And actually, as I, as I was reading your book and as I was preparing for this conversation, you actually introduced me to this acronym of DARVO, which I think is just mm-hmm. a- appropriate to even talk about in this conversation. Would you mind uh, just explaining what that is and what that looks like? Yeah. So, yeah, DARVO is a term that's used a lot about abusive systems. Mm-hmm. So it's how abusive systems react to abuse allegations. It's not necessarily something which is um, actually deliberately thought about or planned. It's just, it's the way abusive systems work. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's an acronym that stands for three things, deny, attack, and reverse victim and offender. Um, and so here's how it might work in a date rape situation. You know, so you deny that it happened. Um, so our, our, uh, our book opens uh, the consent chapter and she deserves better opens with the story of Vera uh, who was date raped and went to her youth pastor. And the first thing out of her youth pastor's um, mouth was, well, what did you expect dating a non-Christian? Right. So you deny that it happened. You attack her. Um, you know, what were you doing being there? And then you reverse victim and offender. Well, don't you realize how, how hard it is for boys to stop when you put him in that position, you gave him no choice. And so now she is the one who is to blame. Or what were you wearing? Don't you realize what effect your clothing has on him? And so now instead of him being the one who did something to her, she's actually the one who did something to him. Like, how could you expect him not to do something, given the fact that you were wearing that, that you went down into his basement, that you started kissing him? What did you expect to happen? And that phrase, like, what did you expect, is actually in the book, Every Young Woman's Battle which is addressed to teenage girls, you know, what did she expect? Yeah. I, I, I'd be curious. What are, what are some of the other ways that you've seen uh, just Darvo play or Darvo play out in a, in the church? Oh gosh. You know, it's everywhere. It's funny. We were coming up with examples of it for almost all of our chapters and she deserves better. Cause I think it is just the, it's, it's the way that we handle anything we don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can certainly see it in, in blatant things like, you know, like, like date rape, like we talked about in the modesty thing, like we, you you know, Mm -hmm. what were you doing wearing that, et cetera. But I think it's also even in, um, in the way that we try to patrol people's emotions and make sure that they don't, they don't ever show an emotion that we don't want them to show. So you're always supposed to be happy and joyful. You're supposed to be joyful in the Lord. And so if you're suffering from depression, well, what are you doing? Don't you know that that 
people who believe in Christ should have joy. And so you must have a problem with your faith. Um, so you deny that it's happening. You say you have no reason to be upset. Um, yeah, you have, you have a problem with your faith. You attack them for that. And then you can even reverse victim and offender by saying something like, how is anyone ever going to become a Christian if this is how you're acting? Don't you know that you're the only Christ that some people in your school are ever going to see or that some people in your workplace are ever going to see? And if they see you having this kind of a miserable life, why are they ever going to want to be a Christian? And so now instead of, you know, instead of you getting any help, you are now painted as someone who is hurting others just because you're hurting emotionally. And so it's this denying people of the, of, of the ability to tell the truth about their situation, of the ability to be honest because we're trying to cover up anything that's uncomfortable so that we make um, we make the church easy for the people who are in power. And it, it doesn't work. It's not okay. You know, Jesus said the word to come to him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And he cares. He cares about each of us deeply. Um, we don't need to hide from him. And so we shouldn't have to hide from ourselves either. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'd be curious to hear, you know, in in all of your research and everything, what was what was one of the, the pieces that just surprised you the most? Mm. Um, I think, okay, well, the obligation sex message, I still feel guilty about this one because mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, I really changed the way that I speak mm-hmm. about sex mm-hmm. because we found that... Um, people often fight about frequency. Okay. Like if you go to marriage counselors or pastors and you say, what's the biggest sex problem in marriage? They'll say, they'll, they'll tend to say women don't want it enough. And so if you look at the vast majority of evangelical sex and marriage books, the, the, um, the topic is about how do we get women to have more sex because men need sex. Women aren't giving them enough sex. This is hurting the marriage. So we need to get women to have more sex. I can definitively tell you that's not the problem. Because frequency is not a problem. Frequency is a symptom. And we found that when women frequently reach orgasm, I'm going to list five things, so get ready, okay? When women frequently reach orgasm, when they feel emotionally connected during sex, when there's high marital satisfaction, when there's no porn use, and when there's no sexual dysfunction, frequency pretty much takes care of itself. Mm -hmm. And so if there's no frequency, if she doesn't want sex, the answer is not to tell her have more sex. The answer is to say, okay, what is going on here? And it doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong with the husband. Okay. There might be, there might be something wrong with the marriage, but as we found in both of our books, the great sex rescue and she deserves better when she internalizes negative messages, her libido plummets. Mm. And so sometimes the problem is that she doesn't feel emotionally connected during sex because of all this crap that she's internalized that we have to get rid of. You know, so it doesn't always mean there's a marriage problem. It's just that when you grow up with this stuff, it can really harm you. And so, you know, I used to I used to teach a lot about how we just need to have more sex. And I've realized, okay, nope, 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 we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to figure out what the problem is. So I, I have apologized for that profusely. Um, yeah, and I think I think with our second survey of of the seven thousand women for she deserves better, there wasn't anything that surprised us per se, except the strength of some of the correlations. Like I couldn't believe how bad the modesty message was. Mm-hmm. Like to get to get um fifteen percent. So <coughs> excuse me, fifteen percent was our cutoff. So if if something affected affected it, something more than 
that was considered quite large. And in most surveys, if you have a statistical significance, uh, like that, that's actually pretty hard to find on most things like this. And so to find a 68% higher chance of marrying an abuser, that is huge. Um, and so that was, that was really sobering is just to see how much we have hurt people. You know, as you were talking about that, uh, that first surprise uh, from the research, it made me think about something that you talk about in uh, "And She Deserves Better," and you you talk about this uh, dynamic of sometimes uh, we confuse that uh, I think life is hard with that we have a hard marriage mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Can can you talk about that dynamic? Because as as you were speaking of, um, you know, having more sex isn't the solution. Sometimes it made me think of that. Sometimes life is just hard for both men and women. And mm-hmm. talk to me about the difference between knowing that, hey, yes, life is very hard for you guys right now, but you know, maybe you just have a bad marriage. Can you talk about the distinction between the two? Yeah. So there is a lot of emphasis in the Christian world on how hard marriage is. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the idea that marriage is meant to make you wholly not happy and that marriage is hard. You need to work really hard at it. When we teach that, I mean, obviously there's an element of truth in all of those things. Okay. But here's my concern. And here's what came up again and again in our interviews is when we teach that, then when someone's in a relationship where they don't feel heard, where they feel like it's a slog, you assume, oh, this is what they meant by marriage is hard. Okay. What if marriage isn't actually supposed to be hard? What if life is hard and marriage is something which helps us get through life? And certainly marriage adds some complexities. You know, you've, you're traveling life with two people. So that means two of you, there's now twice as uh, twice the chance that someone's going to get sick because right? there's two of you. You've got two jobs to worry about if you're both working. Um, you know, you've got a whole extra family to worry about that could get sick, that could have problems. Um, you're going to have kids probably. And that's like, to the nth degree that life can be difficult, right? But that doesn't mean that our relationship is supposed to be hard. So there's a big difference between, you know what, it's just really hard with our schedules right now and with all the housework and with the kids and with the fact the baby's not sleeping through the night or with the fact that if your mom just had an Alzheimer's diagnosis, right? That's life is hard. But marriage is hard is when I don't feel seen. I don't feel heard. I can't talk to her about anything. I can't talk to him about anything. That's not actually supposed to be the case. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to teach people to distinguish those two things. Because often people get into really bad relationships without realizing, hey, you know, maybe we're just not a great fit. Because we have told people so much that relationships are hard, that they don't know how to tell whether it's a good relationship or a bad relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been, my husband and I have been married for, oh gosh, I should have counted before I did this, 30, 31 and a half years. 31 and a half years, I think. Um, and we've had some really difficult times. We had a son who passed away uh, 27 years ago. Um, you know, we've had a lot of things happen to us. Um, and we had a really hard co- first couple of years of marriage. We were just young. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, but it was never that marriage was hard. You know, it was like my husband helped me get through grief that I could never have gotten through on my own. Now, I also wouldn't have had my son had I not been married. So it's it's all very difficult to untangle. But my husband didn't make my life harder. My husband made my life better. And going through those hard things with him was easier than going through them alone. 
Um, and I think that should be the expectation because then if that's the expectation, then when marriage isn't good, you're like, oh, wait, this isn't normal. Mm -hmm. This isn't normal. That means that we should, should work on something. That means we should seek out a counselor. We should read a book. We should take this seriously. We shouldn't just settle for the status quo. And I think a lot of people settle for the status quo because they think, well, this is just how life is. You know, you mentioned uh, one of the changes that you've made because of your research. I would be curious to hear, is there another change that you made in either, either in your speaking or anything like that because of the research that you did? Yeah, I think that is the biggest one mm-hmm. is just, is just, I no longer talk about sex. I talk about something which is mutual, intimate, pleasurable for both. Mm-hmm. Because I've realized that when you talk about just how important sex is, people assume you just mean intercourse. Mm-hmm. And with so many women receiving no pleasure from it, or, um, you know, so many men using porn, and so sex becomes very uh, transactional, and she's not, you know, he's not really paying attention to what she's going through, or all the shame, then sex is not a gift. You know, we talk all the time about what a great gift sex is. If you're married to someone who has never reached orgasm, or doesn't bring you orgasm, like, that's not, that doesn't seem like a gift. Mm-hmm. And and so we just need to change the way we talk about it and just acknowledge there's a lot of people who aren't there yet. Mm-hmm. And we should stop treating sex like it's something which, um, you know, it's your fault if you're not there. And this is something which you should be grateful for and start acknowledging, okay, there's a lot of areas that we've kind of messed up on. And that's that's okay to acknowledge. And if sex isn't great for you yet, you know what? Sex isn't great for lots of people. Let's just figure out how to make this the most fun research project you're ever going to do together. But let's not settle for for terrible. Let's get to the root of yeah. it. Well, I got one other question that I want to ask you about. But before that, I always love just giving people the opportunity to just talk about anything that we haven't covered yet. And I know that we've talked about a lot mm-hmm. of different things. Is there anything just top of mind that you want to make sure that we talk about or cover? Yeah, you know, um. I think the biggest pushback that I get from a lot of people is that um, I'm trying to move people away from Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, by by taking down all these Christian authors or whatever. And I would actually say the opposite is true, is I'm trying to help people rediscover who Jesus really is. Mm-hmm. And our research has consistently shown that church attendance and church is good for people. It is. Okay. In both of our big surveys, people who go to church and went to church as kids, they do better long-term. But our research also shows that as soon as you internalize these toxic teachings, the benefits of church disappear. Mm-hmm. And that's something we need to grapple with because not all churches do this badly. And so if you're in a church that is doing it badly, that can have major repercussions for your kids growing up. And we need to realize, okay, yeah, church is great, but not every church is. And it's okay to say that. And it's okay to try to figure out where's a healthy place where I can belong that actually looks like Christ. Yeah. And that, it just makes me think of, you know, it's one of those things we say that, you know, there's no perfect church, there's no perfect people. And yet, if that's true, we should expect critique. We should expect that we aren't giving, Mm -hmm. giving yeah, we should expect that we, we should be open to critique. I should say that mm-hmm. we should be open to critique because we're not getting everything right. So I, I really yeah. just appreciate your work and for just doing that. Yeah. Thank the, you. The last thing I want to ask about is, um, and I, and I could be wrong on this. I may, I may have misheard or miswrote it down, but I, it, 
one of the things that I uh, heard as I was listening to, um, I think it was Preston Sprinkle's podcast, and you talked about your motivation for this work. Mm-hmm. And you said your motivation for this work is prevention, which mm-hmm. I love. And if I'm if I'm getting that wrong, you know, you can correct me. Um, but I would love for you to just talk about what what can we do? Talk first of all. I'd love for you to talk more about your motivation for it, uh, mm-hmm. if that's the case. And I'd love for you to talk about what can we do to prevent this as well to make sure that we we are healthy that we're having these conversations in a healthy and a productive and christ-like way yeah you know um as i mentioned the first few years of my marriage were really rough and i can trace a lot of it back to reading the act of marriage before i got married that really messed me up that book um and that's what we have found over and over again is a lot of these christian books really mess people up we need to stop that. We don't deserve that. We deserve better. And we we always say, you know, we wrote She Deserves Better because if parents do this better with their girls, then maybe in 10, 15 years, nobody's going to need the great sex rescue. That's our goal is let's let's make the great sex rescue obsolete and not needed because we're no longer selling the dangerous books and we're no longer spreading the dangerous messages. Um. I think our motivation honestly can be found in Matthew 7, where Jesus said that a bad tree can't bear good fruit and a good tree can't bear bad fruit. And so you can recognize them by their fruits. And he said that if you look at the wider context, they were debating how you can tell false teaching. Um, I just want to get the church back to Jesus, where we can really experience abundance and health and wholeness. And that's not what's happening right now. Christian women should not have two and a half times the rate of sexual dysfunction as the general population. And we should not have a 47 point orgasm gap. 50% of Christian men should not be watching pornography. Um, We have some real problems. And a lot of those problems stem from our underlying beliefs. And if this stuff has bad fruit, we need to get rid of it. And so our goal is just, you know, let's, let's put numbers to all of this. Cause right now, What's been happening up until now is people just debate ideas and then no one can really settle anything. It's like, okay, well, you believe that, but I believe this and here's why. And I'm like, okay. And my answer is, okay, you can believe that, but then she's going to have a 35% lower orgasm rate. You know, (laughs) like let's put some actual numbers to this because that's what Jesus said. We can measure things by their fruit. Um, And I just want the evangelical world to pay attention because we've done a really bad job of this. And we've hurt a lot of people. We've caught shame. We've caught sexual dysfunction. We've made porn addiction so much worse. And no one deserves that. We deserve better. And I hope that by having these conversations, we can get there for the next generation. Well, Sheila, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get uh, your most recent book. You know, She Deserves Better. Where's the best place for people to go to keep up with you and get the book? Yeah. So um, She Deserves Better, Great Sex Rescue, anywhere books are found, Amazon, check it out. You can find it there. Um, and especially go and read the reviews because that'll that'll convince you. Just read what, <laughs> read what people are saying. Um, you can find me at baremarriage.com, B-A-R-E, Bear Marriage. Uh, links to all my social medias there. Instagram is um, interesting me. Twitter is angry me. Um, <laughs> you know, so come on over and follow me. And then we have our Bear Marriage podcast every Thursday and our blog too. So you can find everything at baremarriage.com. Awesome. Well, Sheila, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for a great conversation. And just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
So coming out of that conversation, here's a couple of things that it's got me thinking about. One, the first is that our, our intentions, as good as they might be, they don't really matter that much if our actions are actually hurting people. And yeah, I and I, I can understand a little bit, like it, it does, the intent does matter, but in the end, people can still be harmed even if you have good intentions in that. And realizing that because, because of that, we should be open to critique. We should be open to feedback, specifically as it pertains to what we were talking about today in terms of purity culture and teachings about sex as well. If, what, is the, what is the actual outcome that is happening there? And also not being defensive. You know, learn, learning about the Darvo method and learning that we, we need to have that openness and seek to, okay, what, what can I, what can I learn about this? And that's what I love. And Sheila even, even modeled it as well too, of her talking about some of the changes that she's made to her own research as well. And, and I just love that. And, that, and I think that's a, a model that, that we should emulate as well of being willing to, to change how we're willing to do things in order to have a, a more positive impact, a more positive uh, influence on people. And the, the other thing that I want to talk about is, or that really stood out to me, is that sex is a symptom. Whether you're having sex or whether you're not having the sex, it's not the, it's not the, it's not the problem. It's not the issue. It's the symptom of something else. It's communicating something else and being willing to dig down and find out, okay, so, so why, why, why is it happening? Why is it not happening? And learning more about that and figuring out how, and, and I guess along with this is also that, that intimacy and sex are, can be different as well, that they aren't necessarily synonymous that you can have sex with somebody without it being a very intimate or a very personal or very close encounter. And the opposite is always true is that sex can be very intimate. It can be very close. It can be very personal as well. And so those, those are a couple of things that has got me thinking from this. Actually, the, the other thing that I do want to mention is I want to talk about that prevention conversation as well. You know, I'm, I'm reading another book right now called Upstream by uh by dan heath and there and in it he's talking about how what are the things you know that we can do to prevent things from happening and not simply respond to what has happened but prevent what could be happening and thinking about it as it pertains to this and this is this is why like i love the work that sheila is doing of what can we do to make sure that this isn't the outcome for women 15 years from now for 20 years from now and and thinking about that also for, for men, how can we have conversations in the church that lead to more positive outcome, more healthy relationships, more healthy uh, marriages? What can we do to prevent these, these problems, these challenges from happening? And so that's the other thing that I'm thinking about from this as well. And so if you want to continue to hear from me, continue to learn from me and some of the things that I'm currently thinking about, 
such as uh, you know the uh, the upstream uh, book, as well as uh, many other recommendations that I have. Please subscribe to my Substack, and which is in the show notes, and you can check it out there. And yeah, that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to Sheila for being on the podcast and just for the work that she continues to do to help uh, so many people and so many women in in that and to have a healthier and better and more Christ-like relationships as well. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. <laughs>